0: So here we go. We're going to try to sum up the uh, experience of this 13-week course, Globalization Since 1492. And uh, maybe it'll be a half of a class. Uh, there's a, a definite sense of uh, merriment and uh, festivity afoot in the school, and uh, I'm sure that uh, folks would like to take part in that. So I'm going to uh, talk about the final test tonight. And I'm going to try to integrate that discussion of what's going to be on the final test in a in the context of a few ideas about what the course means, uh, Develop a few of the thoughts that uh, came up last week, um, and uh, I think it should be fairly straightforward. Uh, I'll try to keep it relatively to the point, simple, and clear, to the extent I'm capable of that. And uh, we'll see where uh, we see, we'll see where we end up in, a, in an hour and a quarter or so. Uh, Jonathan Veal's presentation, uh, last week raised a number of thoughts and issues. The discussion of a topic like water, I think, is a, is a very, uh, appropriate kind of topic for globalization studies in that, uh, clearly, you know, water is, a, such a basic element of life. It's such a uh, common denominator of human life and uh, the geography of the planet. It's interesting to give these subjects a little bit of history. And after he made his presentation, I found myself uh, glancing through a text, uh, kind of an obscure text published in uh, 1967, <laughs> Natural Resource Development in Canada. And there's a number of uh, articles in this, uh, in this text, which represents a, a conference which took place. Um, Irene Spry is a very famous uh, name in Canadian academics and uh, political economy circles. She edited, was one of the editors of this text. And in an article by uh, Leslie Shaw entitled uh, Property, Possession, and Ownership, Changing Concepts, uh, there was a passage which uh, seemed to pertain very specifically to the subjects uh, Jonathan was raising, giving uh, these subjects a bit of history. At Common Law, I quote on page 248 this article, Uh, water itself, whether uh, flowing in a known and defined channel or percolating through the soil, was not capable of being subject of property or being granted to anybody. Rather, such water was conceived as being of a public character in which private ownership would not attach. Blackstone posited this approach on the basis That as water is a movable, wandering thing, it must, of necessity, continue uh, common to mankind by the very law of nature. The institutes and subsequent uh, commentators classify running water as res commune, sharing the character of sea, light, air, and wind. Uh, Though Blackstone wrote of water being res commune, a, a number of the early cases of common law classified running water as publici, publici juris. So the point being that there's a long history where there's a common understanding, at least in the common law of the English or the British, that water can't be owned, that it can't be possessed. And the push to privatize water, to commodify water, when seen in that context, I think speaks of this idea, the power of this idea uh, of privatizing uh, new aspects of the commons. Uh, and of course, uh, when you think of uh, uh, the push to privatize, uh, the genetic material of life, the genetic blueprints of life. This is a very uh, new concept, and, and a concept that should lend itself to a lot of debate and discussion. Uh, so this uh, force of, of privatization, the commodification of the earth, uh, this is a, a big topic, I think, running through the history of globalization, and surely this is one of the most powerful ideas to emerge from the so-called West. It's not to say that every society doesn't have some idea of property and some idea of individual property and some idea of collective property, uh, but it seems that this concept of private property is, it takes on a particularly powerful impetus in the West, and interestingly, it generates, the power and force of this idea generates the most serious critique of capitalism, which is communism, which I would argue is very much a Western, an outgrowth of Western philosophy, communist ideas. So uh, with that uh, introduction, I want to make a transition from uh, the discussion of water as a, a universal attribute of the human condition, uh, to a consideration of you know what is relative and what is uh, variable and what is constant and consistent, uh, what is universal to the human condition. And uh, this touches upon, I think, one of the huge themes in globalization which many of you uh, referred to in your in your essays. Uh, the communications revolution. The fact that human orientations to time and space keep being radically transformed. So uh, anybody who's made the transition from snail mail to email, for instance, I don't know if uh, you're at the stage where You remember time before email, Um, but obviously this has dramatic implications for how one relates to time and to space. And uh, this whole approach that we're taking to uh, pedagogy, uh, the use of uh, this new media, as I see it, we're experiencing uh, right here and now a sense of… in a sense, compressing time and bending space. And of course, this has uh, powerful uh, implications. It has powerful um, and important roots in the experience of the 20th century. When the theory of relativity posited this amazing discovery that uh, the things that we took as being most fixed in the universe, most absolute, most universal time and space could in fact, were, we're not in fact uh, fixed and, and uh, constant in their form. Time can be as it turns out compressed or stretched and we may even discover, or humanity may even get to the point where uh we we experiment and get to the get to see if time can be reversed uh you know if you can go backwards in history forwards in history, vary your speeds running through time so this i think uh, I'm coming to see this uh revolution in human orientation to time as uh in a sense, the great crisis of the 20th century. Because it flowed from this discovery that time is not universal and consistent. If time is not a fixed uh, procedure, a fixed duration common to everyone's experience, what else is, is not fixed and is, is not uh, an a inviolate point of point of reference. And so I I come to see, for instance, Franz Boas and his cultural relativism as a reflection of the same kind of process in history that gives rise to Einstein and his theory of relativity. If time is not a constant, what else is not a constant? And so the assumptions made in the 19th century of who was advanced and who was backwards who was civilized and who was primitive? What, what, uh, conceptions of the future were, uh, universally recognized to represent progress and what conceptions were, were retrogressive or backward looking? Suddenly all of that changed so that it's no longer clear, uh, as it was in the 19th century, a time of, you know, of great, uh, emphasis on Darwin and, and uh time of a lot of uh racism or ethnocentrism, suddenly that that began to be challenged. Those assumptions began to be challenged. So uh this revolution in time and space, I think I think the format that we're using in this course uh gives us a, a sense of uh bending space we talk to Ottawa, we talk to Ireland, we talk to Australia. And just speeding up the process of communication so that it's not quite instantaneous. It takes 10 seconds. We see that 10 second, uh, um delay. Um, but I, I think this is, the, 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 this is a, 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 a concept, a, a central concept in terms of conceptualizing globalization one of the core processes within globalization is this communications revolution. Communications revolution uh, starting with the transformation of the world's oceans from great barriers dividing humanity into highways that can join and link humanity. So for instance, when we discussed uh, Henry the Navigator, uh, and his navigational school and his study of cartography, and how to relate places on the on the globe with the stars, with the sun and the moon. Um, this this is a uh, part of a, a technological scientific revolution that transforms the oceans into media of interactivity between human societies. Uh, and And then you think, okay, once you start to connect the continents at first uh the boat technology of uh for instance North American Indians becomes an important means of of advancing the process of globalization, but then comes uh railways um, first comes canals then come railways, and railways uh, extend the process of globalization into the interior of uh, continents. Closely connected to the building of the railways is the uh, building of telegraphs and uh, this electronic communication. And of course, Morse code, I mean, who could have imagined that Morse code would lead directly to the internet? And yet, uh, that's what's happened, and if that's what's happened in a 100 years, What's going to happen subsequently? Uh, so from, uh, the, uh, telegraph come, you know, out, out of that grows the telephone. Out of that, out of that grows, uh, the whole emphasis on radio and the discovery that you can, uh, connect, uh, electromagnetically through, through, through the air. And so this, uh, this revolution in communications uh, changes and reorients human, human relationships to time and space. It seemingly compresses space and accelerates time. And the theory of relativity, of course, tells us that uh, time, the duration, the passage of time is relative to one's course through the universe. So as one approaches the speed of light, time slows down um, and nothing can go faster uh, than the speed of light. So um, these are the, uh, are the new laws of nature. When Einstein comes up with the theory E equals MC squared, well, what is that mass times the speed of light squared? Well, we know the speed of light is really fast. The speed of light times the speed of light must be an enormous an enormous uh, quantity, and boom you know one thousand nine hundred and forty five Hiroshima and Nagasaki demonstrate this isn 't just abstract theory; this is actually how the world works. this is actually how the universe operates. We have a demonstration we have a proof of it, and in my estimation. Um, the uh phenomena of you know going into the nuclear age where human beings discover this genie in the bottle uh the basis of self destruction ultimate complete self destruction not only of ourselves but of every living uh, species on the planet surely that is a moment of huge implications for globalization suddenly our common uh, fate not only as human beings, but as all living creatures is is there uh, before us. I think there was a moment after World War II where uh, certainly if Roosevelt had had his way, uh, there would have been a kind of global government. The United Nations was very much uh, an outgrowth of uh, that regime. The United Nations could be seen as a as a, an ideal, as an effort to expand the New Deal, which came in the context of the Depression, and uh, imported degrees of social democracy into into the United States, and introduced Keynesian uh, economics into the United States. Uh, so there was a moment there where humanity was kind of joined by the by the uh, debacle of the of, of World War II, um, and yet, as humanity sort of was poised to develop this sense of common common uh, purpose in a, in a social and political sense, the lords of the world, the masters of uh, the most powerful. Um, centers of influence and decision making uh, determined that w- we would not have a, a universal regime, we would divide the world between a communist sphere and a capitalist sphere between the orbits of two superpowers uh, and so uh, the Cold War uh, imposed this uh, polarity and we were uh, as human beings encouraged once again to think of uh, ourselves as a, in a, in a limited sense, uh, posed against others who represent some kind of alien or um, toxic um, ideal, uh, communism as a toxic ideal, uh, destructive ideal. Uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the uh, demise of the Soviet Union, once again there was the possibility of human beings Forming a, a global society, and it's tempting to see the war on terror as a as an effort to replicate something of the conditions of the war, of the Cold War. That uh, you know, there's such a huge um, economic, political uh, center of gravity in the in the arms race, in uh, in the uh, stimulation of economic uh, relationships through the building of um, of, of of systems of, of of arms of weaponry and when i think of the military industrial complex increasingly i think we need to think that it you know extends far beyond the actual companies making armaments uh, for instance, the media companies, the, the creation of the the opinion that supports the uh, dir- the direction of so much human creativity into into uh, making weaponry, weapons of mass destruction, the the psychological part of that is uh, so important. The, the manufacturing of the of the of the opinions of 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 of, of the attitudes of the general. Um, uh ideas or or feelings that we hold um, you know there th- this is probably the the biggest business in the world to to construct these attitudes. It goes by many names you know public relations advertising perceptions management psychological warfare uh, so um, this is uh, this is how i i want to introduce the the uh, test question. So as one does this week after week, and this has been going on since January of 2003, this pilot project, this experiment with, with the new media. And as far as I know, this is the uh, only site in the university where we're doing this consistently as a as a, as a, project that continues week after week, month after month, year after year. Uh, the new media is being used in all kinds of ways. Uh, at the school, there's a department of new media, um, but we've been doing this uh, consistently for three years now. It comes to seem a bit like uh, thinking back to the era of the Wright brothers or something when you think of uh, how, this, how this started. But you start to uh, appreciate that. Uh, this kind of technology which which in a sense continues a revolution in communications which, which could be seen as very old uh, and yet it, it seems to be speeding up. And it seems to be um, taking hold in such unexpected ways. Uh, one's whole sense of uh, space and how one is aligned with institutions and students and and, and uh um, and time zones uh w- one begins to appreciate that uh you know institutions have changed the idea that this school is based in southern alberta and we provide the education primarily for southern albertans uh, uh i think that way of looking at it is there's a certain amount of that which will prevail, which will which will hold true uh, in the future. But in, in a way, there's nothing to prevent institutions from reaching out, uh, from uh, reorienting their relationship with 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 space, with different constituencies. Uh, if Lucan is out there in Ottawa, it's uh, you know one one develops a, a sense uh, of uh, it's like she's here. Uh, I don't know if, if you've gotten to know her very much. Um, uh, the idea that we could be uh, in different parts of the world with our uh, document uh, cameras, with our, um, our, our little video machines, um, the idea that uh, uh, to teach a course at the University of Lethbridge, you don't necessarily have to be in Lethbridge. So the uh, fantasy that I'm de- that I'm developing uh the uh, uh project that I I um, reflect on is it a fantasy is it a, a possibility um, I don't know but uh I see the possibility that a course like this could be based in let's say Beijing Let's say we think about how the world is changing and transforming right now, and we say it's very clear that the new centers of power and decision making are places like Beijing, Shanghai, Singapore. It's interesting where Tokyo is going to fit into this, old rivals, China and Japan. Uh, I'd like to study that uh, rivalry now going on between Japan and China. But in the question, I'm going to pose a hypothetical situation, which may not be altogether hypothetical. uh, And who knows, uh, maybe somebody in this room might end up working on it, uh, uh, either with me or somebody else. But say, uh, hypothetically, we were to shift location and do this course, say two, three years in the future, out of Beijing. And we'd do it in English, and we could have students in Lethbridge, and students in Beijing, and anywhere else for that for that matter. And uh, we would look at globalization uh, from one of the sites. Beijing, possibly Shanghai, or maybe going back between the two. Um, one of the sites where uh, the world is really changing, where people are meeting and making decisions uh, about the way the world is going to be configured in the future. So we move into that space, uh, establish that as a hub, as a, as a center in the axis of enlightenment and uh, begin to design events calling upon people in Beijing, but anywhere in the world for that matter,